When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. What's good, family? Your boy David here with BWR, and I want to let y'all know it is going down in H-Town on March 28th. Yes, I said it. March 28th, we are going to be in Houston, Texas, hosting one of our Renaissance Mixers at Muse Office Space. We're going to be talking stocks, real estate, business development, and much, much more. Tell a friend to tell a friend. It's going to be a great time. going to be good vibes. Link for the tickets is down in the show notes. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Peace. What's up, y'all? This your boy David with Blackwell Renaissance, and I'm here today to tell you guys about Anchor. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it's the best place to make a podcast. Anchor is a free app that has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone. Anchor also distributes your podcast across all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. You can also make money on your podcast with Anchor with no minimum listenership. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're looking to get started on your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Do you know the rules of the game? I don't care what color. Can you make me a hundred million? Let's talk money. Can you make me that? If you can't make me that, I'm gonna talk to you. You shouldn't even have this tape. Hey, I got money on my mind. Yeah. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my line unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is broad money marathon. Do five years of this and be a millionaire? and go on, do what I want to do, have kids, go live my trip and joy in the games life out here in Texas, or struggle for next week. The choice is yours. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to normalize black wealth and share helpful resources and tips we believe will be useful in attaining and maintaining generational wealth. Please feel free to rate and comment on our podcast. We would love to hear all feedback you have. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast. David Bellard, one-fourth of the Black Wealth Renaissance, checking in with my co-host. Fellas, how you feeling? What's good? It's your boy, Jalen, man. Another quarter of BWR. Man, I'm just living good, man. Feeling good to be back. It's another beautiful Saturday, man. We're here with a great guest, man. So I'm doing great, man. How you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm making it, making it, bro. Living good. A couple of our brothers, Jared and Kelly, couldn't make it right now. Jared might hop on a little later. But, yeah, man, I'm living good. It's a great Saturday evening. And we got, like Jalen said, another great guest, a brother from Harlem. The yeah. Home of the Hustlers. Home of the Hustlers, baby. Home of yes. the Hustlers. Yes. Been out here, moved from the banking game to the entrepreneurial game, and he's just been killing it with the books. Lately, you motivational speaking, financial motivation. 
And I'm speaking to none other than the good brother Ash Cash, brother. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing. I'm doing yo, awesome, yo. man. Like, I, yo, thank you for having me. Like, I've been seeing what y'all doing out here on these internet streets, and it's exciting, you know, because I it's so crazy, and so that's like it makes my heart like happy, right? Because once upon a time, like it wasn't a lot of people talking about black wealth. You know what I'm saying? And so to now see the space where not only are we having the conversations, not just one-off conversations, but like we're constantly having a conversation about black wealth. It makes me feel good, man. So I'm excited that you guys are, you know, allowing me to be part of the platform and yeah, let's, let's chop it up. Let's talk about that cloth talk, man. Let's, you know, let's get into it for sure. Yeah, bro, man. And, and we just want to say, man, we thank you too, because you kind of wanted the catalyst for driving yeah, for force, sure. man, especially with the Black Wealth Renaissance. I know when that we were starting to really start building this, you was one of the, a large following that we saw, and we saw the books that you were putting out and the things that you were talking about. It was like, man, you really out here doing it, bro. And then when we kind of heard your background, it was like, oh, yeah. He really bought that life. Like, he get it out the mud. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, man, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so, Ash, man, to pop the show off, we always ask our guests if they could just introduce like, themselves to the audience and give them, like, your background story, like, how you got to be an Ash Cash. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I always say, man, I'm a kid from Harlem, New York. Typical urban story. So I grew up in the St. Nicholas Projects, man. So I'm from 129th Street and 8th Avenue. Um, always been a hustler all my life. So eight years old, packing bags. You know, I guess typical urban story. So my mom, I was a, you know, my mom was a single mom. She raised three of us. I was the youngest of three. Uh, because my mom, you know, my mom really didn't have money. You know, I had to hustle at an early age. And so at eight years old, going to the local supermarket, packing bags and helping people, you know, with their groceries in order to make ends meet. It started there. Then, you know, graduated. By the time I was 11, 12 years old, I was, you know, selling mixtapes and T-shirts and, you know, on the famous 125th Street as a vendor. And then, honestly, fast forward to, you know, an adult, not even an adult, like late teens, where I'm, you know, looking at, like, yo, I need to make some money, right? Like, I had, you know, friends in the street that was hustling, that was making some, some good money. They were getting all the girls. So I almost kind of went, you know, in that direction to sell dope, I'll be honest, right? But then... You know, luck had it. You know what I'm saying? My sister, we're really, really tight. You know, she got me a job at a video store, fast out the Blockbuster videos. And that was it, man. I, you know, at 17 years old, I worked at the video store. And then two years later, I got promoted to assistant manager. Two years later, I was 19 years old. And a young lady who worked with us at the video shop was like, yo, they hiring for tellers at Chase Bank. And I was like, yo, I, like I knew there wasn't but so much I could do, you know, as a video store clerk. And so I was like, yo, I'm gonna go for it. You know, at 19, I became a teller, and the rest is really history. I did everything in banking. So from teller to personal banker to private banker, which means that I managed the book of business of wealthy people who started at 250000 in investable assets. My largest client was worth $22 million. I was a branch manager, so I've opened over six branches, you know, de novo branches. I was like the, like the cleaner. Like, they would open up a new branch. I would go. I would market the hell out of it, make it pop, and then they'll take me out and they'll put me somewhere else. And then I became a CEO of a credit union when I was 31 years old. And so I did so much within that banking space. And one of the things that led me to becoming an entrepreneur was, you know, as a banker, I was seeing the numbers. I was seeing like how much my efforts, right, from opening brand new branches. Like I remember in 2008, I opened a branch for Chase. It was an $8 million project from scratch. It was like, I watched it as it was a gas station 
and build it up to the actual branches. And I was like in the street with my team and we were like, you know, marketing and making money before the doors even opened. And then when I, I would look at the PL, I would look at the profit and loss statement. I was like, yo, like I'm making this much money for y'all. And I, you know, like I was, you know, granted I was making six figures, but I'm like, nah, like I'm making a lot of money for y'all. And then at the time, I didn't really like the way banking was going because you got to think it's 2008, 2009 when the Great Recession was happening. And a lot of times people only talk about the consumer side, like how people were losing stuff, but nobody talks about the inside. And maybe that's another book, right? The inside of it was they were putting pressure on us like nothing was happening. Like they were telling us, go ahead, go sell, 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 sell. So they put mad pressure on us to, and, and it was increasing our numbers. So long story short, man, I said, you know what? You know, I don't like how this feels. I do like when I, you know, I used to volunteer and go teach financial literacy. So I would go to inner city schools. I would go to jails. So I would go to like the infamous Rikers Island. I remember we'd go to C-74 and talk to the adolescents about finance, about changing their mindset, about, you know, entrepreneurship. And I would go to churches. I would just, you know, do all that stuff. And I like doing it. And so in my mind, I'm like, yo, how can I do what I love doing, but make money? Because I'm like, yo, I can't sustain my life by volunteering. And, you know, like somebody told me, was like, yo, you should write a book. And I was like, write a book? I'm like, yo, I ain't no author, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know how to write. Uh, but I wrote my first book. You know, matter of fact, it's right here. I wrote my first book in 2009. You know what I'm saying? You could tell I'm a little younger than this picture. Uh, <laughs> but it's my first book, Mind Right, Money Right, 10 Laws of Financial Freedom. And the rest is history. You know, people latched on to the message, especially at the time, there really wasn't a lot of us black and brown people talking about money like that. Like when you thought about money, there were three people. There were Robert Kiyosaki, Susie Orman, and Dave Ramsey, right? And none of them looked like us. And so that's why I even wrote the book, Mind Right, Money Right, which if you really listen to it, that's a Jay-Z and Meth Bleak song, right? And so I've been on the hip hop money thing for a long time. But yeah, but that's how I got my start. And, you know, fast forward now, you know, I've written eight books. Four of them have been bestsellers. I travel the country speaking about how to change your mindset to manage money. You know, I, I live in Atlanta now. I live in a pretty, you know, pretty big house. You know what I'm saying? I'm doing pretty decent for <laughs> myself. And, but I'm still impacting the culture as it relates to helping people change their mindset to manage their money, you know, better and build generational wealth ultimately. Mm. Hey, that was, that was a good damn intro, man. It's a, a lot of stuff we can pull from there, man, that I definitely want to dive into. I think... One of the first things was really what you kind of said to us off camera, though. You know, you was like, I had that street smart, so I applied it to the corporate world. Yeah. And I think that's a skill that a lot of people underestimate about being from the streets or being from the culture and the community that we are. Because growing up, man, you got to negotiate and barter a lot in the streets. Absolutely, you got to do a lot of like whenever you're from the hood, like young kids, they know how to get around on the streets like at an early age. For sure. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. 
Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. So yeah. like you got to grow up real quick. So I just want to kind of talk about how how that made you more effective in the corporate world. Yeah, no, nah, it, it's funny, right? So a couple of things is this, right? I agree with you, Jay. Like, definitely people underestimate that. And that's just because, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? And so people who feel inferior will never tell you that you are superior, for lack of better words, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at people who come from corporate America or who come from good backgrounds or whatever the case may be, they got their nose up. They feel like, man, this is the right way. But they don't understand that because they don't have contrast, they're not in the powerful position, right? The person who has contrast is in the powerful position. For instance, you know, like 50 Cent once said, right? He said, joy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for pain, right? Mm. And so think about that. Contrast is a very important thing, right? Because if you see one side of it, then you taste the other side, you get to choose which side is better. And then based on that, that is what instills your drive, right? Mm. And so somebody who does not have a background of coming from the hood and they only know this side of everything is all good, they don't know what it feels like to be all bad. And so they are comfortable, right? They relax. They're like, okay, so they don't have that same hunger than somebody like me who at eight years old, I was packing bags to eat, right? Like eight years old, I got to pack bags to eat food, right? And so now... And as I graduate and I'm learning the hustle, right, the street hustle that could get you, you could die or you could go to jail, right? Then you get into a legal perspective. You get to a legal space where you're not going to die. You're not going to get arrested. If, you know what I'm saying? And all you got to do, if you have that same hunger, you could actually be super duper successful. Like that thought process is like, oh, wow, it's crazy. And so for me, you know, I remember this story, man. I remember one time I was selling mixtapes, right? And one of my guys, he was, you know, hustling in the street or whatever. And he was just like, you know, hanging out with me one day. And he was like, yo, you know, I was like, yo, I'm going to go in this barbershop and try to get these mixtapes off. So I go in the barbershop, you know, I asked the guy, I asked the barber at the time, which was actually my barber, right? So I, I was like, yo, what's up, blah, blah, blah. Yo, can I, you know, like I'm asking him, can I put these mixtapes in here, whatever the case may be. Long story short, he didn't take any of the mixtapes. He was like, nah, I'm good, Ash. I walked outside. So my man looks at me and was like, yo, why you got these mixtapes in your hand? I said, yo, because he didn't take it. So he looked at me. He was like, yo, yo, Masher. They used to call me Masher. He's like, yo, Masher, do less tell. He said, do less asking and more. He do more telling and less asking. I was like, what? He said, yo, do more telling and less asking. So I'm like, all right, what are you talking about? So he goes in there, right? And then he comes back out. He don't got no CDs in his hands. So I'm like, yo, what you did? He said, yo, I just walked in and I gave him the CDs and I said, yo, these are 10 CDs. I'm selling these for $10. You can market them, whatever you want. But I'm going to leave these here with whatever people buy. When I come back, we're going to bust that down 50-50. So when he said that to me, I said, oh, right. And so fast forward, I get to banking. And now as a banker, that's how I was getting business, right? I wasn't asking, yo, do you want to open a checking account or do you want a mortgage? I was really doing needs-based selling where I would sit down with a person, find out what their needs are, and then based on what their needs are, I would do more telling, less asking. I would say, hey, you know, Jalen, Dave, based on what you told me, this is the product that's working for you. This is what you need. This is what it's going to take to start. Here you go. Sign a dotted line. 
I come to realize that that's called assumptive selling. Like if you look at a sales manual, what I just did right now was called assumptive selling. Mm -hmm. But my OG taught me that in the street. My OG taught me that. He taught me more telling, less asking. He didn't know it was called assumptive selling, but it worked in the street. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that I think that people in the street, if they understood the amount of power that they had in order to move things along, they would be yeah. successful. Like, and I'm happy, like somebody like Jay-Z, right? He's a billionaire. Do you under, I don't think people understand, right? Like the magnitude of, that, that, of, that of what a really billionaire is, is though. Your billion dollars means 10,000 millionaires, right? Meaning that if you were a millionaire, right, to have $100 million, right, you would need a million dollars 100 times. So to be a billionaire, you need to be a millionaire, a thousand, not 10,000, 1,000 times, right? So you need to become a millionaire 1,000 times to be a billionaire. And so understand that thought process that Jay-Z became a millionaire a thousand times in order to be a billionaire. Like, that's huge. And I don't think people understand that. And he's from 550 State Street. Like, he's from the projects. He's from Marcy Projects. And he used that same, you know, hustle and business acumen to get there. And I think that we need to start understanding that we have the advantage, you know, and use that advantage to be successful, for sure. Man. Oh man, god damn. Yeah, she just came here, bust my head. <laughs> yeah, my fault, baby. My hey, fault. My fault, man. You know what I'm saying? My fault, man. I just I just happy to be here, man. You know, I just love to spread the knowledge, you know. But that is a real ass conversation that we really do need to have as a people, though. Cause like we uh I think we talked about this with Doe. Like, man, we look at this as being black as a limitation yeah. always. Like we we never really look at it. It always comes back to our mindset. Like if being black can be a limitation if all you look at is the bad shit that yeah. comes with it. Yeah, we understand there's systemic things in place. Yeah, we understand that our homes get devalued just because we black. But, like, if we focus on just that, we'll never actually take the benefits from our experience and turn them into something good, like you mentioned. Like, you took yeah. that and went to the bank and started closing deals. Right. Like, and, and that's the thing. Like, I don't even believe in good and bad, though. I just believe in perspective, right? Like, I don't even believe that there's anything, anything in this world that's inherently good or inherently bad. It's really the perspective in which you're looking at it. And I think that that's where mindset comes in. I just think that for a long time, black people specifically have had the wrong perspective about things, right? Because there's actually nothing wrong with our neighborhoods being devalued. It's actually a benefit if you look at it from the right perspective. I'm going to tell you why. Because if your neighborhood is valued high, then what happens with, with taxes? Now your taxes go up. And so now you actually can't even afford to live there, right? Prime example, back in New York, Bed-Stuy, for instance, there are people who own beautiful brownstones. And we talk about generational wealth all the time. And we're like, yeah, let's build generational wealth. But the honest to God truth is that the lady that bought that brownstone for $40,000, right, went back in 1920 or whatever the case may be, now that same brownstone has now increased to $2 million. But even if she wanted to stay there, she now has $2 million worth of property tax. And so if she's an older woman who lives on a fixed income, she cannot afford 
to pay what property taxes would be on a $2 million property, right? And so what happens? She might have to sell that property to downscale and buy another property that she can afford to stay in. Why do I say that? Whether her brownstone is worth $40,000 or $2 million, it's still the same brownstone. And the care, right? If you could beautify and make a $2 million brownstone look good, then you could do the same exact thing to a $40,000 brownstone. And so what if, right? And this is just a thought. I like to give perspective, right? What if we kept our neighborhoods devalued, but we just took care of them better? They looked better, they were cleaner, and we respected our neighborhoods, right? Now we get to enjoy luxury at a price that's not luxury because taxes don't go up with it, right? And so I say all that to say is that it's everything, every single thing that you can look at from a financial perspective, even from a life perspective, is not inherently good or bad. It's all about perspective. What lens do you want to look at it? If I take a pair of shades and the shades are tinted red, then guess what? Everything I look at is going to be what color? Red. red. It's going to be red. If I take off those red glasses and I put a pair of blue glasses on, everything I look at is going to be blue. And so what I'm saying is we have the glasses of the perspective of negative or things being bad. We need to take them off and look at it from the bright side and see how beneficial it is. Because I could tell you one thing, even again, at a devalued neighborhood, when we talk about real estate, if you could get a $40,000 home, fix that $40,000 home up and make it livable, now you can pass down that $40,000 home from generation to generation. And if, like, if you look at somebody's budget, the most expensive thing that they pay for is housing. And so even at that $40,000, if you make it livable, if you make it, you know, attractive, at a $40,000 place don't have to be worth a million dollars for you to enjoy it because now you're living cheap. Now you're not living, you know, from paycheck to paycheck because you don't have to worry about where you're going to live. And so it's all about perspective. And I think that as a community, you know, systemic racism, you know, some of these things are just that, right? But at the end of the day, we're never going to go forward by looking backwards, right? If you're driving in a car right now, right? I'm going to give you this analogy. I love this analogy, right? If you're driving in a car right now, there's a reason why the rear view mirror is smaller than the front windshield, right? Because you have to see everywhere you're going in a bigger perspective. If you're driving and you're looking back, you could crash, you could mess up where you're going because you're focused too much on the past, right? But I'll take the mm -hmm. analogy a step further, right? Let's say, for instance, I put an address into the GPS system. As I'm driving, I'm looking every now and then I'm looking at the rear view, but I'm driving, I'm looking forward. I put an address in the GPS system and the GPS tells me where to go. For whatever reasons, right? If I do not listen to where the GPS system is telling me to go, it's never going to take me back to where I started. Guess what the GPS system is going to do? Reroute. It's going to reroute from where you are, fam. Let's go. It's going to reroute from where you are. And so what I'm saying is I don't care about systemic racism. I don't care what held us back in the past because right now, today, where I'm at, I know where I'm going. I'm mm. just going to put in, I'm going to plug in the, the things inside the GPS system and let's go. And we're going to rewrite anytime we, we get a roadblock or whatever got to go. But exactly. we're not going back. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. My fault, y'all. Y'all got me preaching out here. Like, oh, my brother, like we love Sunday, it. We baby. love it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, so look, there's one more thing I want to go back to with your banking days. I just want to go back to like what it looked like whenever you first opened your first location. Mm. What did that look like? And what type of hurdles did you have to overcome? Because like you said, a lot of people don't look at it from the inside of yeah. that. Yeah, nah, so, so number one, it was, it's a scary thing and an exhilarating thing all at once because, I mean, definitely the first time you do it, you know, there's a lot riding on it. You know what I'm saying? Because these are brand new locations. You don't know how well it's going to do, especially at the time banking had just switched over from a service business to an actual sales business. Meaning that prior to the 2000s, banking was service. Like you had your local bank, you knew the banker, the banker was there for 20, 30 years. Like they didn't, nobody really opened new banks. You know what I'm saying? They were just there. But then, you know, coming like the early 2000s, that's when new branches started to open up. They had the more of a sales mindset. And with that mindset, you know, the bank was taking a chance at opening up these new branches and these new locations and not understanding how to build a customer base. And so it was exciting because this is something new that you're doing. But then at the same time, it's like, man, you know, I don't know if this is going to be successful. And then there was a lot of innovation too, right? You had to figure it out because there wasn't a base. And so like my, I remember my first time uh, was a branch in, in Westchester County where, you know, it was a small town, you know, they already had, I think it was Wachovia, which now is Wells Fargo, but they had a Wachovia bank right next door that was there for a very long time. So for me, it was like, wow, how do I, you know, if this is a small town and a majority of people bank at Wachovia, how can I get those Wachovia people over to chase? Um, and that was a challenge within itself the pressure that was coming from the bosses to make sure that you do it. A lot of times we were selling before the branch even opened, right? So it was like handing out flyers, like, yo, we're about to open this branch. Do you want to open an account? And people, you know, nowadays it's natural, right? People will open up anything on their phone. Like they don't need a physical branch. But at the time in the early 2000s, that wasn't the case, right? Like you had to have, you know, they had to see the bank. They weren't going to give you the information on the street. Um, it's always a learning curve. Eventually, you know, I, like I figured out that the best way to do it was to not reach out to people in the street. It was more going to jobs, right? To find out what jobs were in my neighborhood because they were familiar with the Chase brand. Let me, let me take advantage of the brand that they know already and say, hey, let me open up an account for you. You know, get direct deposit into your account. You could use the other, you could use any Chase until we open our bank. And I figured that out. And that actually was my winning method. That's what actually helped me, you know, become successful. And because I used that method, you know, they, when I opened my first door and got successful, they took me out. They put me in another place that was struggling. I did that. Then I, you know, kept doing that. But I think that too, it's always hindsight though, right? As it's happening, it's nerve wracking. I'm like, yo, am I going to be able to do this? I'm nervous and all that stuff. But in hindsight, when I now look and be like, yo, like I did that, like, yo, we put money into this and we were able to become successful. We were able to meet our goals and objectives. It was sort of like an exhilarating thing. And so that honestly though, and that's why I love, I will always have love for Chase because that's why I've been successful as an author, right? Same exact thing. Same exact thing as an author is like, yo, I'm writing a book. I have this idea. I don't know if people are gonna, you know, attach to this idea or not. How am I going to test the waters, right? I'm going to test the waters out to see if anybody even wants this idea. And so I might write a blog. I might tease it with a post. I might do things 
to kind of like, you know, to test the tech, check the temperature of my customer. But then as my customer says, yes, they want it. I now, before I even finish the book, I might do a pre-sale. So that way people could be out and, you know, could be buying it and showing me that it works. And then once it's there, you know, I start doing my sales, doing my marketing. And then in hindsight, I look back and be like, damn, this worked. Or it's not always successful, right? Because, you know, even I've had books that I've written that show nothing. And now I learned from those. I'm like, oh, you know what? That wasn't a good idea. Okay, don't do that anymore. And so you equally, and that's why I talk about the lens, right? Somebody might write a book and be like, yo, this joint didn't sell nothing. And they stopped writing books. Or you could look at it from, all right, what can I learn from this, right? I started a business, it failed. I wrote, I wrote a book, it failed. I started a podcast, it failed. What can I learn to now do it better until I have success? And that's the thing that I learned is that I don't put a timeline on my success. I know for a fact, like there is no doubt in my mind that anything I do will be successful. I just don't know when. And I'm okay with that, right? Not knowing when is the biggest thing that you have to accept if you want success. If you're putting a timeline on it, if you're like, yo, this is going to be successful at this particular time, when that time comes and it's not successful, most people are going to retreat. Most people are going to do something else. And all of that work that they put in was for nothing. You know, I'm 10 years in writing books and now I make a living off of books. And I'm happy that I didn't listen to the people who told me I should stop writing after my first one flopped, after my second one flopped. It literally took me five books to figure out the formula. And then now I'm coasting. And so, you know, to your question and your point, you know, opening up that bank was something I was nervous about. I didn't know if I was going to be successful, but you know, put your mind to it. And I just kept, you know, making sure that I was going to try different things. And eventually I was successful with it. And that's the formula that you can use for anything. Mm. And, and that's something that we're really big on, like just not giving up, like always just trying something, even with us, with us growing like our account, even with us expanding right now, like we're just trying stuff. And yes. like you said, you might not get it your first time. You might not get it your second time. But if you just keep on going, keep on tweaking it and say, man, hold on, this I overshot. Now I'm a little bit too low. You just keep on testing yeah, the formula. You got to keep testing the waters because it's like one major thing that I like you said, you can't put a timeline on success. Mm. That's the biggest thing. Like, because especially like with today's day and age, we always talk like, you know, it's just hitting 2020. Mm. We all talk these goals set and making these things happen. And a lot of people a lot of the times we'll make these goals and we sometimes will fall short. Sometimes we achieve them. Sometimes we fall short. We can't let that falling short stop us from continuing forward. Cause man, like you said, the great Nip said, one of my favorite quotes from him, man, the big thing that distinguished him was that he didn't quit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just persistence, like continuing to do the work. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, like a major, major key though, right? Like that's a major key to do the work. And that's why I say to everybody that whatever you're doing, just make sure you love doing it, right? Like don't do it because you're looking for an outcome. Do it because you actually enjoy doing it. Because what happens too is that for me, I enjoyed, right? Like I said, before I transitioned from banker to entrepreneur, I enjoyed going to the jails and kicking game, right? I enjoyed going to the inner cities and kicking game. I enjoyed going to the churches and kicking game. And so because I enjoyed that so much, I just made a career out of doing what I love to do. And, you know, my success, you know, at some points, I might break a door down and do something that 
I never thought I would do. But then even if I'm at this high level and then I get taken back down, I'm not like, oh my God, I got to get back to this high level because at my low level, I'm still doing what I love. At my mid level, I'm still doing what I love. At my high level, I'm still doing what I love. Meaning that if... If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. One person read my book and they hit me and like, yo, Ash Cash, yo, that book was dope. It helped me. I'm, I love that. If 100 people hit me and say that, I love that. If 100,000 people hit me and say that, I love that. But I'm not focused on the amount of people. My, my goal isn't to say, you know, because I mean, you know, like I want millions of people to read my book, but I'm okay with 100,000. I'm okay that 100,000 people read my book. I'm fine with that because at the end of the day, if 100,000 people read it, then it's just a matter of time that a million people will read it. And the great thing about, you know, intellectual property and doing things that last forever is that there is no timeline. Even when God decides to take me out of this physical realm, my books will still exist and people will still have access to them. You know, I, I say this all the time. Napoleon Hill wrote Think and Grow Rich in 1929. I read that book every year. Me too. You know what I'm saying? And so he's not here anymore, but his work has still impacted it. And so think about that. As you're thinking about, you know, success, don't think about, yo, this is a great idea for right now. Let me just do it. No, think about what do you love? How can you do something that could stand the test of time? And if what you're doing could stand the test of time, do it with love, the success is going to come. Mm. That's a so, word. It is a word. And with that, when you're talking about works that last and your books and all that, I kind of want to start pivoting toward looking at what, what that was like whenever you first started getting into entrepreneurship and started making your first books. Yeah, I, so same thing, right? It was a trial and error. And so I'll tell you a funny story because I don't want anybody to think that my road was straight. Like, this is how it went. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I remember in 2009, I was 29 years old and I was just about to turn 30. And so, you know, I had wrote the first book and it was doing pretty well. I actually was on Hot 97, Black Enterprise did some stuff on me. And so at that time, I was full of myself, I'll be honest. And so I actually threw myself a retirement party. And so if you follow me on Facebook, go to my Facebook page under albums, you're going to see that in 2009, I was 29 years old. I was about to turn 30. And for my 30th birthday, I threw myself a retirement party at the 4040 Club to retire from banking into entrepreneurship, right? At the time, you know, I didn't really have any like legit entrepreneurs in my life. And so I didn't know what it took to be successful as an entrepreneur. And so I felt flat on my face. I was making money. It wasn't that I wasn't making money, but I was living a six-figure lifestyle. And so because I was living a six-figure lifestyle as a banker, I wasn't making six figures my first go-round. And so I literally almost lost everything. So I, I was a homeowner very early. So I, I bought my first home when I was 25 years old. You know, my daughter was two years old at the time. I was married. And so I'm living this life but now I can't afford anything. Now I can't, you know, be the man that I thought I was supposed to be. And I almost went into foreclosure. My car almost got repossessed. In fact, that retirement party, I had to unretire and go back into banking, right? I had to go back and become a banker, you know, and redo things over and over, you know, do, redo things over again. 
But for me, it was a learning lesson, right? And so to your question, that was the biggest thing I learned. I learned that as an entrepreneur, I was too heavily invested in my physical labor, right? I was dependent on working. The only way I made money was I had to physically work for money in order to survive. And so at that point, right, that breaking point that some people might've looked at like, oh my God, you suck as an entrepreneur, so get a job and just stay at your nine to five. But instead I said, nah, you know what? What can I learn from this situation? And what I learned was that I need to change my relationship with money. Instead of working hard for money, money needs to work hard for me. And so the second time around, instead of you know, relying, going back into the bank, making good money and, and just using that money to live, I said, how can I take that money and invest? And so my wife and I, you know, we bought a, you know, an income producing property. We had you know, a tenant and a tenant paid our mortgage. And, and that was the beginning of me understanding the importance of passive income, income that you don't necessarily have to work for. And that was sort of like the beginning of that. And that is what allowed me to now, my second time around, say, you know what? I'm gonna quit banking. But instead of quitting banking cold turkey, I'm gonna get a job, you know, so for making six figures, now that I have a little bit of money coming in passively, I'm gonna get a job making $50,000. I'm gonna be a, a counselor or something like that. Did that and then started continuing to build my side hustle until now I can leave my side hustle 100% and become a full-time entrepreneur. And so in the beginning, it was tough. In the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing, but eventually just kind of learning from my mistakes, learning how I could do it differently, it got me to the space to now, you know, I'm able to make money passively, like without even having to do anything, I know that there's a certain amount of money I make. I still work for money, but actually let me refrain that. I still work, but I don't work for money, right? Mm -hmm. I work doing what I love to do. And as a result of that, the money comes, but at the same time, I still, on one side of the spectrum, I still have money that just comes passively. On the other side of the spectrum, I have money that comes in from being active, and that money that comes from being active, I can now take that and then reinvest it somewhere else in order to make it passive income as well. Ooh, some bars, man. My boy said he really came in a man. But that's the power of what that lesson was right there, that lesson of falling flat on your face that first time. Real, you came back that second time like, oh, I know what I did wrong that exactly. first time. Exactly. <laughs> this time that's I'm coming to it Exactly. Exactly. That's a fact. That's a fact. So now, right, you touch that oven and you get burnt, but don't mean that you don't still want what's on that pot. Exactly. So now you get a glove this time. Know what I'm saying? Now you get a glove this time. Now you make sure you cool it off, right? You don't you don't get burnt on a pot and you like, I'm good. Nah, you like, nah, I still I still want that, but let me figure out how I get it without getting burnt this time. You know what I mean? Most deaf, most deaf. So Ash. Next thing I want to go into, man. So, like you said, you wrote these books. You wrote five books before you hit your first book. But what was like the process like of writing your first book? Because I know yeah. a lot of people hit us up and they ask us, man, like, I want to write a book, but I don't know where to get started. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I would say this, right? The first time, the first book that I wrote, I literally wrote the book. You know, I would literally, I was working at the bank at the time. I would literally drive my car to the parking lot an hour earlier. And I would sit in the parking lot. That's where we had Blackberries. And so I would type, I would literally like type on my Blackberry and write this book. Um, then, you know, when it's time for me to leave, I would do the same thing. So maybe about two to three hours per day, I was writing, I was writing. Took me about eight months to write my first book. Now, fast forward, I could actually write a book in a week if that's all I'm doing. Like if all I do is dedicate myself to that book, I could write a book in a week. 
if I'm doing other things, I could write a book within one or two months, start to finish. And so I would tell anybody out there who is looking to write a book to start by dictating your book, right? Technology is your friend. And so what I mean by dictating is I would first sit down and think about what is it that I want to write about? What message do I want people to get from this book? And then based on that message, I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to say, what are the steps that it's going to take for me to get people to get to this message? And so I'm going to write the steps down. I'm going to say, step one is going to do this. Step two, do this. Step three, step four, step five, whatever steps it's going to take. And then literally, once I outline the book and I have the steps, I literally take my iPhone and I start to voice record. I pretend as if I'm doing a workshop and I'm teaching people about this concept. The, the beauty of dictating opposed to actually writing it down is that if you have to write something down, that means it comes from your head. Then your head has to process it through your arms and your arms has to actually physically write it down, which breaks down the thought process and everything like that. And then so you might not have the same thing that you thought about on that paper. But as you think it and it comes out the mouth, it's like literally less than a second that happens, right? In fact, I was doing a workshop the other day and in the workshop, I asked a young lady to write down and tell me about her business. I said, write down, as I give you one minute to write down about your business in one minute. She could not do it. She probably had like five or six like words on the paper telling me about her business. So now I said, all right, now tell me about your business. And she was able to tell me about her business in 13 seconds, right? And so imagine that because she thinks about it, she says it. That's it. It's like less than a second. And so I tell anybody who's writing a book, make sure that you outline it first, know what you're talking about, and literally just dictate the book. Once you dictate the book, you then could take the voices, the voice that you recorded, mm -hmm. and now find somebody to transcribe it. You have Fiverr.com. You have Upwork.com. You literally just take that file. You send it to somebody. They're going to you know, take that, your voice and transcribe it, and then you go through the editing process. You do that. You'll have a book in no time and you'll have your thoughts out there, your creativeness out there. And then now you've created another source of income. You've now created a source of passive income by just putting in 10 to 30 hours of talking. Mm. With that, we know that you push ownership big on that. Yeah. So how do they go about, you know, saying, man, this is my book. I own it. Amazon don't own this. This yep. publishing house doesn't own this. What does that step kind of look like? Yeah, so you just literally have to create your own publishing company, you know? And the great thing about it now is that you could literally own all that stuff without paying an arm and a leg. And so, um, you know, all, all eight books that I've written are all under my publishing company, One Brick Publishing. I own the rights to all my books. I, you know, own the copyright. Um, and so it's literally, you know, after the book is done, it's literally uh, filling out a form, copyright form, and sending that out to get copywritten. I think, I think it's like $110 to get, to get your book copywritten, you know, going and buying your own ISBN number. And so your ISBN number is actually like the number that identifies your book. And so if you go to myidentifiers.com, they're the only distributor of ISBN numbers in the United States. Uh, you buy your ISBN number under your company's name, you copyright it, and then now you own it, you know? Um, and the great thing about ownership in books is that now we live in a space where you have direct access to the consumer. And so you don't necessarily need a publishing house to own your book in order for you to make money. 
you can actually own it and still make money from it if you have the right marketing plan and the right you know uh, marketing down down pat. So with owning your book like that, would you be able to kind of like get into bookstores, maybe like Barnes and Noble or like something like that? And is that kind of a little bit more difficult or would you suggest, hey, just straight online and just get it straight like that? Yeah. So I believe that and is better than or. And so I don't ever choose. I don't ever choose. I want all of it. Right. Okay. And so writing, doing your book that way. Yes, you can still sell it online. Yes, you can go to Amazon and Barnes and Nobles online. Yes, you could sell it at the, you know, out your trunk if you want to. You could go to speaking engagements and sell it. But then, yes, you can still get your books in bookstores. In fact, you know, I make, I make minimum four figures a month off of books, right? And so when I say four figures, four figures is $1,000, right? But in my particular case, on average, I make between $2,500 to $2,800 every month off of books. The one thing that helped that was the fact that my books are in bookstores. Because at first, I was only doing online, right? And mm-hmm. so when I was only doing online, I was seeing an average of maybe $300, $400 a month. But when I started to tackle independent bookstores, when I started tackling like the libraries and things of that nature, okay. that's what allowed me to now sell, right? There's a thousand, right? There's thousands of independent bookstores. And so if all of these independent bookstores are ordering books from you, then that's going to exponentially increase the amount of money you make each month. And so I would say, um, so the only caveat to that is that, you know, when you are publishing your book yourself, that's why I say go to myidentifiers.com mm-hmm. and buy your own ISBN number because you don't want your ISBN number to show that it's an Amazon book or it's a, you know, like it's a Nook book or a Kindle book. You want it to show that it's your, you know, your publishing company because uh, independent bookstores are going to be more likely to put you in their bookstore if they don't think that you're a self-published author. So you don't want to, look like you're a self-published author. You want to look like you're signed to a traditional publishing company. That's the reason why my publishing company is called One Brick Publishing. I could have easily called it Ash Cash Books. I could have called it Mind Right Money Books. But at the end of the day, Mind Right Money Management is the name of my company. People could associate that publishing company with me. Ash Cash is my name. People could associate it with me. For me, uh, One Brick Publishing is not associated with me so people might think that it is a total separate entity, and that's why they might be willing to put my books in the bookstore. And so I would say make sure that you play the game a little bit in order to do that. You know what I mean? Oh, hey, that's a big tip too, though, yeah. because sometimes a lot of people be like, man, I'm not playing the game. I'm selling out or whatever, but they don't understand that, like you said, this is still a system. There's Absolutely. still some things that you got to play by the rules, yeah. but there's also loopholes to get around the rules like you just gave them. Yep. Name it after something else where well, you still own it, but it don't track back to where it's looking like it's associated with you. For sure. For sure. And that's the other thing too, right? That's why I said to you earlier, and is better than or, because um, I know people that do not sell on Amazon. They only sell on their website or whatever the case may be. And they're killing it. Like they're killing it. They're doing well. But for me, that's because they're only uh, like, in my opinion, they're only focusing on book sales, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, nah, I'm not going to give Amazon 40%, right? I'm not giving them 40%. Like, I want to take, I want to keep the lion's share. But what I realized is that being on Amazon is why I've done national television, right? Being mm-hmm. on Amazon is why I've done national radio. Being on Amazon is why I've done major speeches with over thousands of people in the audience. Because when you Google me, like... I'm legit. You know what I'm saying? When you Google me, you don't only see my website. Like, Google think I'm important. 
Like, if you Google me, I got a whole Google thing on the side that I don't even have no control over that Google created. Google, you know, did all the crawling and took all my pictures and took the covers hey. of my book because I'm an author, right? Because I'm on the mainstream websites. That would have never happened had I not been on these major platforms. If I only sold my books on imashcash.com, Google wouldn't think I was important because people are only finding me one place, which is mm -hmm. on my website. But now people can find me everywhere. You can find me on my website. You can find me on Amazon. You can find me on Google Books. You can find me on Barnes and Nobles. You can find me on Books A Million. So as you're able to spread yourself and be available everywhere, is that's how you start to be able to accumulate and make money. I have audio books, right? I'm not gonna, like, I remember one time somebody hit me on a DM, was like, yo, I drive Uber. I wanna read your Jay-Z book, but I drive an Uber. I said, all right, peace. Thank you for telling me. I went and I recorded the audio book because there's people who don't read books. You know what I mean? It's people that listen to books that, that are gonna need the information that I give. So I say, and is better than or. Make sure that you're saturating the market wherever people buy, wherever people listen, wherever people consume, just so that you're covering all bases. Most deaf. Most deaf, bro. So with that, we're going to ask this before we get to our last section. So since you, you know, you come from the banking sector and you kind of got a chance to look at, you know, the way people spend and everything, what would that one thing you would tell someone who's trying to build wealth? You know, this is what you need to do in order for you to start taking those first steps to actually getting out of just living in the rat race. Yeah. So if I could give you four things. Oh, that's right? cool. Yeah, if, I could give you four, if I could give you four, because I think that it is no secret formula. It's a science, right? Like literally it's a science. Like it literally, if you take the color red and you mix it with the color yellow, it's going to be green. There's nothing you, you know what I mean? Like, like that's the science It's exact science. So number one, is that you have to know what it is that you want. You have to have a target. A lot of people are blanket about finance. They're like, yo, I want to be financially free. But what does financial freedom mean? What does it mean? Because what David thinks financial freedom is, is what David thinks financial freedom is. What Ash Cash thinks what financial freedom is, is what Ash Cash thinks financial freedom is. What Jalen thinks financial freedom is, that's what he thinks financial freedom is. Like, there is no universal financial freedom. Yeah. And so you have to define it. So I say, number one, you have to define it. Create a target for yourself. What is this target that you want to reach? Number one. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Number two, you have to believe that you can reach that target, right? So if financial freedom means that you want to be a millionaire, then you have to believe that you could be a millionaire. And believing that you could be a millionaire doesn't mean just like wishing it. It also means that you know what steps that you want to take in order to be a millionaire. You know what it's going to feel like to be a millionaire. You know how you're being, right? Like how does a millionaire talk? How does a millionaire walk? How does a millionaire, like all of that stuff, you got to start being that immediately, right? So number one, you have to create a target. Number two, you have to believe in that target. Number three, you have to visualize that target. 
you have to kind of see it in your mind's eye. Before it becomes real, you have to see it in your mind's eye. And then lastly, you have to execute. Hmm. That is the biggest part. You have to execute hmm. on that vision, right? And so now you know your target. Now you believe you can reach that target. Now you see yourself. You can imagine yourself, you know, having that target and creating that target. Now you have to execute like it's already done. You do those four things, there is not a thing on this earth that you cannot accomplish. Not one single thing on this earth that you can't accomplish. The reason why people don't achieve their dreams is because they haven't fully defined it. And if they defined it, they don't believe that they could get it. And if they believe they could get it, they haven't visioned themselves doing it. And if they could vision themselves doing it, they haven't executed and paid the price for what it takes to get it. And so I think if you do those four things, you will get out the rat race, you will love your life, you will do everything that is in your power to live the best life that you want to live. Mm, there you have it. Appreciate it, my brother. Appreciate hey, it. Right, that four powerful steps. So look, for sure, for sure. If, hey, listen so, to him. Like you said, apply the science to it, put in the work, and y'all go get it out of the mud. For sure, for sure. And we're going to be here while y'all trying to get it out of the mud, too, though. Supplying the resources and all the tools and the knowledge that you need to help you out on your journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, and with that, we're going to pivot to the last segment of the show. So, Ash, I just want to ask you, what's something that you've seen on your timeline recently that you thought was important or impactful that you just want to speak on? Yeah, man. So, you know, like, so I, I told you this offline that, you know, I have – you know, my timeline is righteous and ratchet, you know, at the same time, you know? And so a lot of times when I'm looking at my Instagram, I mean, I make sure that I'm purposefully putting out things that are, you know, positive in nature, that is not, you know, that is helping to uplift people. But also, you know, I look at things that are impactful for me. And so one of the things that, you know, I liked, and I'm going to, it's actually a quote. I watch quotes, quotes a lot. And so something that impacted me and made me feel good was a quote that said, why start a second job when you could start your first business, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that impacted me in such a way because I hear people all the time talk about living paycheck to paycheck and their solution to stop living paycheck to paycheck is to tie up their time doing something else, you know? And so you have to understand that you have a limited amount of time and so if you're going to wrap up your time working one job, now you're going to wrap up the rest of your time working a second job. You can literally just stay in that one job, create, you know, start your first business that can actually free up time because as you create passively, it allows you to now buy some of your time back. And so that's one thing that was on my timeline that really impacted me because I think that everybody, no matter where you are in your journey, I know and there's some people are at different places in their journey. No matter where you are in your journey, make sure that you are creating passive income, that you have ownership in something, and that you're creating multiple streams of income because one stream of income is economic suicide. Like you're committing economic suicide if you only have one stream of income. Even if you have one business, you should be trying to figure out how can you create, you know, like the great Nipsey Hussle talks about ecosystems, right? How do you create an ecosystem around the one business that you have, right? Me as an author... I'm not even an author, right? I'm a financial educator. And so as a financial educator, what are the other ways I could create other sources of income around me being a financial educator? Oh, I'm going to write books. I'm going to make money there. Oh, I'm going to be a public speaker. I'm going to write money there. Oh, I'm going to be a brand ambassador and I'm going to make money there. 
Oh, I'm going to do online courses and I'm going to make money there. Oh, I'm going to consult and help people. I'm going to make money there. And so these are all making money off of this one thing, this financial educator, this guy that has this information about money, about entrepreneurship, and how can I create an ecosystem around that one thing? And I think everybody needs to be able to do that. Most deaf bars. Hey, so this was a great podcast, bro. We definitely thank you for coming on, man. Oh, man. Like we said, we we're definitely looking forward to this. And uh, we definitely going to have to get you back on in the future, bro. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, anytime, man. Like I said, man, I appreciate what y'all doing. Keep doing it. Y'all killing the game. You know, I think that a lot of times in the past, people would look at other people in their lane and be like, yo, it's competition. But nah, we need to do this together. And so that's why I appreciate y'all reaching out to me. You know, anything I could do to support y'all, let me know because we're in this together. You know, like when you go to the, the supermarket, there's not just one brand of orange juice. There's different brands of orange juice. There's different brands of bread. There's different books out there. You know what I'm saying? So like there is no lack. There's enough for us all. And what y'all doing is, you know, like we're going to talk about, you know, the Black Wealth Renaissance 20 years from now. Like, this is, like, all of us, we're literally ushering, like, we're part of history. Like, I don't even think people understand that. Like, we are part of history. Like, back in the day, when people would talk about all the spending power, black people wasting their money, all that stuff, like, we are the solution to that. And we're providing the tools, the resources. So 20 years from now, when the wealth gap is short, and we're passing down wealth from generation to generation, they're going to remember the black wealth renaissance. They're going to remember Ash Cash. Yeah. They're going to remember. You know what I'm saying? They're going to remember everybody who's out here doing a the thing. They're going to remember us all. We are making history. So let's keep doing it. Let's keep our foot on the next. Let's make sure that we change this narrative because we're not looking back. What's done is done. All we're doing, we're looking forward. We're letting that GPS system guide yeah. us to where we need to go. And we're going to create multiple millionaires. We're going to flood that. That forget the Forbes list. We're going to create our own list. Yeah, we're we already create, on it. We're already on it. We're going to create our own list, and we're going to be top of the top of all of that. Yeah. yeah. Motherfucker, right. God damn you know it, man. And uh, we are coming back to Atlanta this year, so we definitely yes. going to uh, get with you, man. We're going to host the uh, meetup in Atlanta this year. Oh, I'm there for sure. I'm there for sure. For sure. Most deaf, most deaf. So, well, we're going to get into some housekeeping before we so uh, wrap before, this before up. Before that, Jalen, before that, my brother, Ash, could you please tell the people uh, where they can find you and where you can, like, where you plug in anything that you got going on, man? Nah, for sure, man. So definitely check out my website, IamAshCash.com. Also, you know, I know I gave a lot of game away as it relates to writing books. If you're interested in writing any books, I have a course that gives you all the game, plus how to market it, how to, you know, become a bestseller, how to sell, make money off of it. If you go to MindWriteWrite.com, you could get the course there. But then also, man, just follow me every, you know, follow me on Instagram, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. My handle is I am Ash Cash and all my information is there. You hit the link in the bio, you'll see everything that I have to offer. And like I said, man, I'm also Googleable. So you could Google Ash Cash and all of my stuff will pop up as well. Most yeah. deaf, I love it. Yes, so yeah, now we're going to quickly get into some housekeeping notes. Once again, always want to thank everybody for tuning in week in and week out to the podcast. You guys are special. We love y'all. Y'all continue to rate and review the podcast. Thank That's you, how thank I you, thank you. Go and just continue to spread the message of this knowledge, this renaissance, share the history and the making that's going on. Jayna. Yeah.
Also, y'all check out our budget and spreadsheet that has dropped. The budget and spreadsheet is going to help you keep track of your income and your expenses. It's going to help you keep track of where your money is going. And we're just trying to really just keep on building that generational wealth like we've been talking about. But we can't do it unless we know where our money is going, where our money is coming from, and create multiple streams of income. Also, y'all be on the lookout for our ebook, Manage Your Money Like the 1%. It will be dropping soon. Yeah. So, with that said, there'll be Black Wolf Renaissance signing out. Peace. Hey. I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is run money marathon. I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless it's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.